The movie opens with the murder of a mother going out her front door. The bereft and traumatized father fights tirelessly to keep his one mildly disabled child from any and all danger until he is kidnapped and brought far away. Having lived his entire life in fear, the father about his wild and every son from slavery against all odds. You may have seen this movie. It's called Finding Nemo. I never realized how dark children's movies could be until watching my children become terrified at some of these plot lines ask me very difficult questions. Stories like Finding Nemo are so popular in part because they resonate with us on a deep, deep level. Frozen, for instance, tells the story of saving between two sisters. Lion King tells an age-old story of political drama and infighting of destiny. Zootopia describes how deeply suspicious we can be of one another, of people especially who are different from us, and how those suspicions can be manipulated and used against us. Cinderella explores the idea of hidden beauty. All of these stories, they find home with us because they are true. But to me, Finding Nemo takes the cake because even though it involves fictional characters and talking fish, it is a true story by which I mean it tells us something true about the world. Nemo's father, who is not competent or brave in the beginning of the film, loves his son so fiercely and with such overwhelming tenacity that sharks and submarines and seagulls and Australian dentists can't keep him at bay. And the story that Paul tells us is one also of a father whose children have turned away and are in mortal peril until he sends his only begotten son to go find them and to fight his way through famine and illness and fear and violence and persecution and empire and even death itself to bring them home. The process has not always been pretty. In fact, the story of bringing his children, God's children to himself has been perilous and heartbreaking. They keep running back into the slavery out of which the father has rescued them. But it is a story of God's unending love. In the earlier parts of chapter 8, we came to see that the problem of sin is deeper than we know. And the hope of salvation greater than we even dared to imagine. But here, we come to the crescendo. The high point. What does the life, death, and resurrection mean, especially to a church which is experiencing persecution and injustice and general suffering? It means that God's love can conquer all things. Romans 8.37 No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul's logic here is simple and very effective. Look, if God has given us his own son, 
God take would withhold from us? What could possibly us? What would he withhold from us when all things come to fruition? He who gave us his own life, who he withheld, what would he possibly withhold from us if he has already given us salvation? And if anyone brings a charge against us, who is the ultimate authority? Right? Who is the ultimate judge? How could we be condemned by anyone if the judge has been the one to embrace our condemnation and turned it into adoption? There is no one, there is nothing God won't be able to Christ has overcome death and is Lord, then he has already shown that swords and jeers and stones and whips and plagues and crucifixion can do nothing to stop him. On the cross, the world and the devil does its worst, and it simply wasn't enough. All of the evil of the world is exhausted by inexhaustible love. All things. Present nor things to come. Of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our friends. We have arrived. The book of Romans isn't over yet. This is hard to say. This inherited all the way forever is of all things. When all the veils and shadows and pains and hopes are pulled back, you find that in the end, all there is is the love that God gives. The love which overflows into the nothing as creation. The love which called Abraham from Ur. The love that set the bush ablaze and parted the waters of the Red Sea. The love which burned on Sinai and flamed in the temple. The love which planted the gardens in Babylon of the exiles. The love which turned Mary's faithfulness into joy. The cross into a throne and the tomb into the very womb of new creation. Love. We all know this. On some least, they cannot be separated in the love that God is. But it is such a fierce, alien, all-consuming truth that we rarely have the ability to look it square in the face. But too often, because we can't look at ways that we, we misunderstand God. We relative the love of God. And both of these are attempts to reform God's love into our own image. And neither one takes mirror image of mirror images of one another and pernicious 
Christian lives. So first, we trivialize the love of God. Our English word love can be used in such a variety We trivialize love by confusing it with a kind of positive emotional regard, a feeling of affection or universal affirmation. God's love thus becomes a regard for us, a big hug, a word of affirmation. A trivialized love says, you do you. Explore what makes you happy. Be what you feel inside it. Follow your heart and you won't be led astray. This is a sort of Disney princess version of truth, though lately movies like Frozen actually have been a bit more nuanced and robust. Love of this nature points one inward toward the deep truth within and affirms it entirely. Now, there is so much. Each. Possess fundamental level dignity, dignity proper to that image. But furthermore, we are people desired and loved by God, not just for our general dignity. We are loved in our deep, granular particularity. God authors our individuality and beauty in all of its intricate, interlocking layers. And the work that he has begun in each of us is, as Genesis says, very good. But it is for this very reason that God is not content to allow us to follow our heart or remain as we are and become what we can be by his love. Love is not just affirmation, as if to rubber stamp our own version of reality or certify our own self-desire. If God wanted to do that, there would have been no need for redemption, no need for sacrifice, no need for incarnation or crucifixion, no need for Jesus at all. There would be no need for baptism or participation in the life of love as positive regard and acceptance. It's to make God an accomplice to our self-destruction and the destruction of creation. The bottom line is that such a love says that each of us gets to be the Lord of ourselves, not conformed to the image of Christ. But flowering the fullness of the God. If you were a parent, your job desire good for them, to will the good for them. I had a very difficult time learning to read as a child. 
um, had some pretty significant learning disabilities and it was discouraging. And so I was way behind my class in third grade in terms of reading. So I tried to explain to my mother as the youngest child that I wasn't like my other siblings who were just natural readers. I just wasn't a reader and she was just gonna have to accept that. I would find ways to get by without being literate. Now, thankfully, she loved me enough to read with me for hours every day one summer between second and third grade. And what do you know, as it turns out, I was indeed capable of literacy. She loved me too much to leave me to my own self-understanding and definitions. And thank God she did. If my earthly mother loved me in such a way, how could our heavenly father not? Such an acceptance without desire for the good is no love at all. It is to leave us to our own devices. No, God in Jesus loves us so much more than that. Jesus wants to see us drawn into the full beauty that God has for us to be like Christ, not losing our individuality, but rather free for that individuality to find its created end and flourishing But this reality, this falsehood, a relativized love. If the first error was to trivialize love by making it vacuous, the second error makes love conditional. A trivial love accepts us without drawing us toward wholeness, towards the good, towards Jesus. But a conditional love makes God beholden to our own do-gooding. Yes, God loves us, but we have to clean up our act before we embrace him. If we obey him well enough and, you know, follow his commands, then maybe we'll be lucky enough to hear the words, well done, thy good and faithful servant, the end. Love becomes the hope for reward at the end of right behavior. But that is a lie. A father whose approval needs to be won over is not the father that we have in scripture. There is some truth, of course, in all of this as well, as with the prior issue. God desires for us to become whole. He desires for us to be obedient to his will. He longs for us to follow the way of life and truth and to be faithful to him. He longs for us to live instead of die, to live in accordance with him, who he is and what he has done for us. And like my mother teaching me to read, he is not content to leave us to our own devices. He longs for us to be conformed to his image. But this way of viewing God confuses cause and effect. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes this, but God being rich in mercy, us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with uh, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace 
you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. So that not as a result of any of so that talking about God's one directional grace toward us, a love that speaks first, not as a reward. The love of God comes before anything else we do. It is before all things, in all things, and without it, nothing that we have to be obedient to, uh, to find out and find our way to God's love is simply heretical and blasphemous. God's love finds us where we are, in whatever state we are in, and he offers it to us unconditionally. We need only cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. God meets us in our brokenness. God's love meets us in our heart, twisted around our own will, and invites us to be purified like a precious metal with the consuming fire of his love. The good works that follow are not the means of our union with Christ. They are the enjoyment of it. They're not the means, they are the enjoyment of it. Good works, the fruit of righteousness, is the enjoyment of salvation. They are the embodiment of God's love alighting in us. To relativize the love of God, conditional, would be to deny the cross of Jesus as in the opposite kind of way. The offense of sin is assumed to be so great that the cross does not sufficiently deal with it. We need also to be good boys and girls to be loved. That is simply false. When Jesus hung from that tree, he didn't say, it is almost finished. He didn't say, now you just have to do your small part. What did he say? He said, it is finished. There is nothing you can do, no lie told, no atrocity committed that can keep the love of God at our And he is not content for you to remain mired in self-deception and half-truths and lesser, broken, frail, fragmentary loves. He desires to see the good work that he authored in you, in us, to be brought to ultimateness in himself. Love of God that Paul writes about is neither tepid positive affirmation nor sterile legalism. It is neither trivial nor relativized. We are not walking in darkness. God has found us. And when God finds us, there is nowhere where we can ever be lost again. There is no danger larger, uh, there is no danger larger than him, no valley too deep, no mountain too high. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction noonday, says the psalmist in Psalm 91. Because even when we suffer, and even when we die, we are in the love of God. For the love is stronger than death. And when we are transforming 
inviting us to be all who God has created us to be. Not in order to receive his love, but out of the response of the love that he offers freely to us. Pray with me. Scripture that tells us of your pursuit, your pursuit to right the wrongs of a broken and fallen creation. And Lord, it is in your Son, Jesus Christ, that we see most clearly what that self-giving love looks like, pouring out yourself for the life and sake of others. And Lord Jesus, we ask that that same love, that same love which we receive purely by grace, might also be the animating principle of our hearts and minds, here, now, and always. And we pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.